Hey everyone, you're listening to the Simple Electronics Podcast. I'm your host, Dan, from the Simple Electronics YouTube channel. This episode is sponsored by PCBWay, but more on them a little bit later. With me today is absolutely no one. It's just me. As some of you may know, as of late, I have been drowning in work. And so um, that's not getting any better anytime soon. And so I didn't go through the extra work it is to coordinate with someone else, to have someone else on the podcast. So it is just me today. I'm recording this episode on February 28th, and here in Ottawa, we just got dumped on with a whole bunch of snow. So my back is a little bit on the hurdy side after having cleared the entire driveway, and I'm expecting a bunch of snow plows overnight to uh, come and make snow banks on the road and on the sidewalk. And so tomorrow when I head to class, I'm going to have to clear all that. So that's going to be fantastic. That's the joys of living in Canada. I guess uh, if I lived in Florida, I wouldn't have to worry about other things like, you know, alligators and whatever. So in hindsight, probably snow is the better option here. I've had a few people actually um, ask me why I don't build a little uh, remote control snowblower type thing. And I'll tell you very simply, uh, snow is much heavier than you think. When it's like really cold outside, um, we're talking about, you know, minus 15 Celsius and below, whatever that is in Fahrenheit. I can't really edit it onto the screen for you, but it is what it is. Um, Then the snow comes down and it stays really fluffy. But the thing is that a cold snow doesn't happen all that often. It typically, at least in my area, it snows a lot more when the weather is hovering around the freezing point, a couple degrees below freezing. And that's when snow is wet and very, very heavy. And then when you get snow banks created by plows, you get this um, this pressure heating on, on the snow, right? If you compact snow into a snowball, it gets more dense because you're actually melting some of that snow mechanically by raising the pressure and that's that, that becomes super dense you know almost the weight of water maybe about you know three quarters of the weight of water and so to move that is a lot of effort and of course you can't just drive through it because then the temperature drops and when you drive through it it makes you know obviously compacts it some more makes it into ice and when the you know, the weather drops, it just solidifies into an unbreakable cube at that point. So if you were to make a little device for throwing snow around, like a, you know, some some sort of small snowblower, you need a lot of power for that. I mean, very recently, I suppose with advances in, you know, motor tech, motors are getting a little bit cheaper. You can buy a snowblower that plugs into the wall. They're a couple of hundred bucks, so they're not that expensive. But the thing is, they can only be used when the snow is relatively light. You know, when you get those cold snows, I suppose they'd be a little bit better, you know, somewhere like in Alaska where it keeps, where, where it's like cold, colder for longer and it snows while, it, while it's cold. Um, here, I suspect that it would only be good for, you know, a couple of our snowfalls throughout the entire year. And then you have the, you know, the additional burden of keeping 
that snowblower, the electric snowblower around all year round, and you're only really going to use it like 10 times during the entire year. So, I mean, it would be a dream to be able to build something like that, but it's just, I don't think it's worth it. Um, my personal strategy has been using a snow scoop, like a giant shovel that you just push along the ground instead of, um, you know, shoveling and pulling up. So it's been a little bit better on my back, but it's still not great. It's still, you know, you have to jerk the shovel back to, you know, empty it out and you have to tilt it downwards in order to, you know, push it up a hill to dump the snow. So yeah, I'm getting old, you know, 35 years old, but uh, I've been in the automotive industry uh, for the last, uh, I don't know, 15 years. No, more than that. 17 years. I started in uh, 2006. So whatever that does. Um, so it's been really rough on my back. And so you know, snow days like that really slow me down quite a bit. On top of that, I've been busy as hell with school because I've got a, you know, a new group of students. I'm always trying to improve my material, make it clearer, make better examples. I have to, you know, design more concise and more interesting uh, labs to do with the cars. It's really fun, though. This, um, this portion of the semester, we're playing with oscilloscopes. And a lot of my students, they kind of complain that electrical, the electrical subjects, which I teach, are some of the hardest subjects to sort of comprehend because uh, electricity is not visual. That's what they tell me. Electricity is not something you can see. You can't really see the flow of electrons. You don't really know which wires have power on them. And, you know, the circuits are a little bit uh, haphazard little bit um, like a like a mix of everything there's more than one circuit in a wire loom all sorts of things like this but I'm trying to show them that actually it's the opposite the that electricity is one of the only things you can see it's just that you do need the right devices in order to see them so the oscilloscope is one of those things so us as electronics hobbyists we're well-versed in oscilloscopes. We understand that what an oscilloscope does, what it's used for. You know, you can actually uh, read the signaling. You can you can see PWM, uh, you know, uh, pulses and all sorts of things like that. But for automotive uh, trades folks, they're a little bit afraid of the oscilloscope. You know, it's kind of that thing where you're afraid of you what you don't understand. They're fairly well-versed with the multimeters. You know, they can check voltage at a plug. They can unplug a device and check its resistance. Uh, and they can open up a circuit and use a multimeter in current mode to, to read the current in a circuit. But what they, they have trouble putting two and two together with is that an oscilloscope is literally just a fast multimeter. It does a lot of the same functions of the multimeter, especially in, in volt mode, except it has just two dimensions to it instead of just one. You're not looking at a static voltage in a circuit. You're looking at voltage over time. It's graphed over time. And in fact, um, you folks listening, probably electronics enthusiasts, let me know in the comments on whatever platform you're using if there's allowed comments 
Um, if you you're not an electronics enthusiast, you're just listening, you know, to this from the outside of the hobby. But in the automotive world, we typically don't even need that fast of a scope. I think Snap-on's oscilloscopes that they that that they sell for automotive use is I think it takes like 50 kilo samples per second, whereas like an entry level decent um, hobbyist oscilloscope will have one gig samples per second. So, you know, instead of 50,000, it'll actually take a billion samples per second. And the snap-on scopes are typically uh, two-channel, whereas a, a, a decent hobby starter one is two-channel as well, but with a function gen, usually. And even the Rigel, uh, you know, 1054Z has uh, four channels available to you. And so um, the signals in automotive are, you know, relatively slow. If you think of stuff that we would check, uh, let's say like injector pulse or um, ignition pulse, ignition uh, signals, um, they happen in the span of a few milliseconds. Not like microseconds, picoseconds, you know, it's not down there. It's like milliseconds range. And so it's, I, I have fun showing them that really what you're looking at on the oscilloscope is just a multimeter reading, but with, you know, the added function of time. So you can look at how a signal varies over time. And um, on top of that, you use a current clamp, and the use of a current clamp is like mind blowing, because now not only you know can you check that a circuit is active, it has you know voltage uh, going to it, but you can see if it actually does work, because if there is a known voltage in a car, it's about fourteen volts or so while it's running, usually about thirteen eight. Um, and then you can see like a current ramp up and then shoot down to zero and then ramp up and then shoot down to zero. Then that means that you are making something work, right? The more current in that circuit, the more work it's doing for any given voltage because that's just Ohm's law or Watt's law in that case. It's voltage uh, multiplied by current equals power and power is work. And so, um, for example, you can have an ignition coil, which for those of you don't, that don't know, it um, provides the spark to the spark plug, which lights the air-fuel mixture in a cylinder. It's basically just a, a voltage transformer or a current transformer. It transforms your 12 to, 13, 12 to 14 volts from your battery in your car up to 30,000 volts in order to jump the gap on a spark plug to make a nice hot zone to light the uh, air-fuel mixture, well, you can check if that ignition coil is getting, you know, positive voltage. You can check that the ground is good. And you can also check to see if the computer is sending it a signal to trigger. However, that doesn't mean that the internal workings are actually doing anything. When you put a current clamp 
on the uh, the, the positive, like let's say that the, the the positive voltage uh, going into the coil, you can actually see the current ramp up because it, it's a it's an inductive coil, right? It, it resists the flow of um, uh, of current, but on top of that, um, it it creates it saturates a magnetic core because it's just a transformer. That's all it does. So in the primary winding, it saturates the magnetic core, and you'll see the current will ramp up until the core is saturated, and then it'll plateau. And then it'll go away instantly as the ignition coil cuts off the the positive, the, the voltage going to it, or the, the current going to it. And that's when it generates the spark. So I'm trying to explain to the students that, yeah, you can check if 12 volts is making it to the coil, you can check if the ground is connected to the coil, and you can check if the signal is getting to the coil, but you can do all three of these at the same time by just putting a current clamp around the positive wire. And there's other things they can do too, mind you. We do have like um, test lights that you put in series with the coil so that um, it lights up every time the spark goes through. But either way, it's you know, electricity to me is actually the most visual part of diagnosing a car. You can tell if there's current going through it. All you need is a current clamp, ideally a current clamp and an oscilloscope. You can tell if a voltage is getting to a device, right? A multimeter will tell you that. A test light will, will give you that. A test light is a common rapid test tool we use an automotive, it's literally a light bulb with a, you know, in a screwdriver handle with a, with a pointy end that you use to touch the metal contacts to see if there's voltage there. And you, the other end has an alligator clip that you clip onto, you know, the, a battery ground or, or whatever. And if you poke, if you poke a wire with the pointy end and there is voltage there, then the light lights up. It's a it's a it's an incredible incredibly quick way to check circuits to see if they're active, if they have voltage going to them, and you can quote unquote flip the test light around. You can you know uh, clip the alligator clip to the positive lead and then poke stuff. And if the light turns on, that means you have ground where you've poked. It's it's incredibly useful. I guess like I should um, I should do a video at some point of sort of the crossover between uh, electronics and automotive because there is quite a bit of crossover. In fact, a lot of the um, electronics hobbyists could probably uh, diagnose most of their vehicle's uh, electrical problems with only their knowledge they have, you know, already. Uh, there's not much more knowledge you need. There's a little bit of how-to stuff because sometimes the connectors are hard to get apart. It's hard to, you know, uh, understand at what point a certain sensor is used. But I mean, it's all it's all basics, like magnetic pickup coils that pick up, uh, you know, uh, the signal for like cam positioning or crank shaft positioning. You've got uh, potentiometers that uh, that are used for positioning, you know, of less than um, 180 degrees so basically like your throttle plate when when you accelerate when you hit your accelerator pedal 
that's actually read off. It's two potentiometers that are in opposing uh, polarities uh, that just cross each other, basically. And your your computer, which we call a uh, PCM, uh, it's usually PGMFI control module. PGMFI means programmed uh, program module fuel injection or something like that. PGMFI. I actually don't remember. Uh, P uh, PGM. FI. FI means fuel injection. And the P... Oh, you know, I don't actually remember. Let me just look that up really quick. You're kind of like joining me. Okay, it is programmed fuel injection. So PGM means programmed. Well, there we go. So I was actually, I knew what it was, but I confused myself. Um, so yeah, the, the, the computer module basically reads off the value of two potentiometers which are hooked up in reverse of each other to make sure that's only to make sure that uh, the inputs aren't uh, erroneous and then it does what it does it you know increases the fueling to the engine accordingly it's super basic stuff for electronics people but for tradespeople that are kind of um let me tell you, tradespeople are very intelligent, um, but they are self-limiting. They they sort of like they. Uh, let me. I'm going to try to say this uh, um, as kindly as possible because I do mean it with a lot of kindness. Um, I find a lot of tradespeople get into their own heads. They kind of uh, buy into the rhetoric that you know the old guard in their shops and workplaces, the ones that are teaching them, uh, they kind of buy into the to their mentality that new technology equals overly complicated ways to do things. And I strongly disagree with that because all that new technology really did to engines and vehicles and stuff like that is add layers on top still easily understandable layers because it's just more of the same that protects the engine and the occupants you know the drivers from uh, catastrophic failures there's a lot fewer engines that blow up these days compared to um, you know older engines and these new engines are being pushed way harder like way harder it's very rare for, you know, a car these days to throw, you know, a connecting rod through the block, make a big hole in the block and be a total write-off compared to back in the carbureted days when a car was relying on a carburetor to get its fueling. And the simple reason for that is more stuff is monitored and the computer can actually take control of the engine and the, the computer is able to run the engine at a sort of like a lower power mode, uh, lower efficiency mode in order to be safer and get you home. That's what the, you know, it's called a, a limp home mode. The computer can do that. It can overfuel the engine. So it'll run pretty rich. It can lower the maximum revs. It can uh, lower the output power. And it'll be able to just get you home. Whereas if you have something like a carburetor, one of the jets gets, uh, you know, a little bit clogged 
your engine starts running super lean and starts heating up like crazy. It gets so hot, you know, when in a lean condition that it can actually start melting holes through the pistons. I mean, ask anybody with an old two-stroke, as soon as you have a compromised gasket on your two-stroke, too much air comes in and then it runs super lean and melts a hole through the piston. So these failures are a lot less common today. I mean, there's other failures that are a result of manufacturers pushing the envelopes of, of manufacturing, um, but I would say it's a lot less common to be stranded on the side of the road. Your car gives you way more warning. You have to ignore way more before your car gets that bad. And so, um, yeah, if you, if, if anyone listening is interested in a sort of like a, a, a quick video chronicling, you know, electronics knowledge that is relevant to automotive or maybe just a couple automotive sensor um, teardowns and explainers on how they work, uh, you know, geared towards a non-automotive crowd, geared, geared towards, um, you know, uh, electronics hobbyists, uh, let me know because um, I have a, a few components around here that uh, might be interesting for little teardowns like that. And so that's a that's a possibility. I mean, it's not like I don't have any ideas for videos. I have right now way more ideas than I have time. And so I plan on responsibilizing others um, in order to or sort of involving others in order for me to be able to make more content on a regular interval. Because if it's just left to me, um, especially after a, a, you know, a, a long week with a lot of hours worked, I would just rather sit here and listen to podcasts or whatever instead of work. But um, I really do want to get YouTube videos done. It's, it's a little bit like that thing where I want them to be done, but going through the effort of doing them is, um, you know, daunting. So it's, it's one of those things, if I force myself to do um, more work, I'll be happier with the results, even though it'll be a little bit more treacherous when I do more work. I do need to set some time aside for some recreation, though, because, again, like I've been working a lot of hours, especially on the college stuff. Uh, I've been working uh, with my colleague at the new job, doing a little bit more uh, physical work, you know, busting my hands a lot more because I'm working on um, sort of like fleet vehicles and all sorts of vehicles. Um, I actually uh, plan on uh, playing a new video game, just a, just a chill game, just a relaxing game, uh, Euro Truck Simulator. I don't know if anyone uh, heard it, but you basically, you play in um, as a, a truck driver, basically, driving around Europe doing deliveries and stuff. And I feel like that's just a nice and chill game that I can get into to just unwind a bit. So I bought this like a week ago and I haven't even, I've installed it, but I haven't even played it. So that's how busy I've been. I've been just insanely busy. 
Just a quick interruption to talk about this episode's sponsor, PCBWay. PCBWay has been a long-term sponsor of the channel, and I think they're a good match for my channel because they provide quality PCBs for a reasonable price. You can get boards manufactured up to 100mm by 100mm for just $5, including shipping to Canada, 15 US dollars, including shipping to USA, 12 US dollars, which is incredibly cheap for professionally manufactured PCBs. I can personally attest to the quality of these PCBs, and so if you want a circuit immortalized forever, check out PCBWay.com with the link in the description. Now back to the conversation. I had um, a 3D printer take a poop on me. Um, so basically, I have this 3D printer that was sent as a review uh, unit from a company I'm pretty sure not many people have heard of. It's called Shinwini. Um, you can still sort of find them around, but it's really hard to find. I really liked the machine. It comes with a lot of really cool features. It has like a sort of like a volcano style hot end. It has a dual gear all metal extruder. It has a big... Uh, build volume, uh, I think it's 310 mils by uh, 310 mils by 310. So I think it's 310, 310, 310. So just over a foot in all directions. Um, but when I got it, the software was absolutely horrid. It would pause in between each layer. And that pause would mean that it would like put a blob of stuff on the on the material so it would blob like crazy um, and also it would um, it, it would shift like it would layer shift left right and center and I had contacted the uh, the company and I was like this I mean the machine is great in principle oh and there was a couple there was a shipping damage too I was like the machine is great in principle but the software is just junk. And even like the filament unloading uh, didn't work. But loading worked. It, it didn't make any sense. But anyways, I got some of the kinks worked out. And it's actually been a fairly reliable printer. It was reliable enough that I was able to tear down my uh, Tronxy X3A, my old, old reliable, and uh, upgrade some parts in it because I had a working 3D printer. If I broke something on the Tronxy, I can use that 3D printer to to fix things. But when I was printing parts for my latest um, PCBWay video, it started spewing some, like, black stuff, like, like really, like, burnt filament all over my prints. So I was like, what the heck is going on now? And I tried to pull the silicone sock off the, uh, off the hot end, and it was stuck. Like the silicone sock was like glued to the hot end. I was like, that's not right. Something's wrong here. So I heated it up and then tried removing the sock. And when I removed the silicone sock, I noticed that all underneath the silicone sock, all the inside is just filled with burnt filament, which has been spewing from the top of the, of the, of the, the heater block. The heater block then was actually loose like it wasn't hot tightened from the factory for those of you that don't know when you put together a 3d printer hot end for the first time you're supposed to mount it onto its uh, mountings in the machine and then heat it up to working temperature 
and then tighten down all the components. Well, that wasn't done on this one. So the, you know, the heater block loosened and the pressure of pushing filament through was squirting filament out the top, which was being caught by the silicone sock and it all ran down the silicone sock as all burnt stuff. So whatever, not a big deal. I had it heated up. I tightened everything down uh, and then I made it redo a, you know, homing sequence and all this stuff. It printed two more times flawlessly. Perfect, right? And so then uh, I just sent it to do the last piece that I needed to shoot my video. And the nozzle buried itself into the, the heater bed or the, the heated bed. And then it like destroyed the whole heated bed. Like the, the heater part is fine, but the magnetic build plate and the magnet underneath that magnetic build plate completely destroyed. And so now I have, you know, a, a, a 3D printer, which I thought was reliable after fixing it. And it worked twice after fixing it. And now it just decided to destroy itself. So then I check, you know, what's, what's going on with this. And then I make it do an auto leveling sequence. And the, the bed leveling, the auto bed leveler, it has like a 3D touch, which is basically a BL touch uh, knockoff. For whatever reason, now cannot reach the bed before the nozzle does. And by the way, it worked fine twice. But now there's no chance, there's no way of the auto leveling sensor to touch the bed before the nozzle does. So it just rams itself into the bed. So I took apart the, I reheated up everything first, first and foremost. And then I tried to re-slide the whole assembly into the cooler because the cooler is what sort of bolted together and it's bottomed out. All the set screws are tight. I loosen them. I tried to push it up higher. It doesn't, it doesn't work. It's bottomed out. It says it, it's all the way up. So it's not like the whole assembly slid down. Then I took out the 3D uh, leveling sensor, 3D touch, and I shimmed it down. And it still wasn't low enough. And I compared it with a brand new unit and they have the same rod length. I have no idea what happened. I shimmed it down further. And now with the uh, baby stepping, I can actually get it to print stuff, but the bed is still completely ruined. And so I have to order a new bed pain in the fricking butt. And then, you know, then I have to mess with the software to make a new Z offset because you can't do it in the menus. Such a pain in the butt. I, I really thought this thing was working and it was working. It was printing flawlessly and now it just became, you know, another junker. So I'm setting that one off to the side. I still have two other 3D printers, right? Don't, don't feel bad for me. I got, I got some printers. So I've got my Tronxy X3A, the old reliable, and I've got a used, um, I bought one I bought used, uh, man, it must be over a year ago now. Um, X5, Tronxy X5SA, which is a core XY sort of like massive thing. 
which I paid very little money for. I still can't believe I got it that cheap. But the guy built it like crap. But anyways, this thing is not reliable because it does not have auto bed leveling, which I don't like, which means that the Z offset is very hard to adjust. And the way it's designed, it's just not a fantastic machine. I mean, the frame is fine. The motion is fine. The bed is fine. Uh, it's just that with, um, you know, auto bed leveling and a few little upgrades like a magnetic uh, bed sticker and stuff like that, it'll be a lot better. And in fact, it'd be nice to have Wi-Fi, uh, all sorts of little things like that, that that bother me. So the plan is convert the X5SA, the bigger uh, Core XY machine, Oh yeah, and the belts aren't straight the way it is. Uh, the belts are all crooked. It, it's just not a good design. Okay, but the frame is fine. So the plan is to convert it to linear rails, which I have in hand. There is a project on Thingiverse that designed the conversion already, so I don't have to do it, which is great. I'll, I'll just have to build it. And then um, instead of reprogramming it to, you know, with new coordinates or whatever, I'll use one of the control boards that I have here in stock already and convert this machine to um, basically use an SKR 1.3 board. Silent Steppers has LCD screen, Wi-Fi, all that cool stuff. So I'll convert it to fully new electronics going to redo all the end stops. Uh, it's going to do auto leveling. It's going to do all that stuff. And so, uh, and also with a uh, upgrade in the firmware, it means I can also remove the weird skewing that it has. It, it prints a little bit like if you try to print a, a square, it prints a little bit diamond shaped because of the, the tension on the, on the belts. So that thing will become, you know, hopefully my second um, reliable workhorse. And then the plan, I think, will be to gut the Shinwini one, remove the control board out of that and replace it with an aftermarket board and just run, you know, stock Marlin. Actually, I might even just uh, try to flash stock Marlin onto it, onto that board that's in there. But for the moment, I I just need to... I, I need to... to you know, separate myself from that software. It's absolutely horrid. So yeah, though that's the plan. So my X3A right now is printing like a freaking champ. And theoretically, the way it sits, it should be able to print ABS. It definitely prints PTG. I've already printed with it uh, before. Should be able to even more now. And so yeah, that's the plan. I'm going to be converting you know, my printers to be reliable might cost me a little bit of money might have to buy another control board. We'll have to see. Um, but I am totally into it. Uh, this kind of, uh, you know, sort of kind of sort of working kind of sort of not working thing is just uh, that's not working out for me. I want to standardize everything and um, just have everything working. Because, uh, like I said, I don't have much time these days, so I need to be able to um, rely on these machines, especially if I'm trying to get a video out and, you know, I need to print four or five parts. I need those parts. 
right? I need to be able to just load up the machines and go. And especially here in Ontario, um, with our electricity being so expensive, I have to wait until 7 p.m. to start 3D prints or wait till the weekend because the electricity is nearly half the cost after 7 p.m. So that's the deal there. So we're towards the back half of the podcast now, and I just wanted to share with you a little bit of how I've been unwinding in my busy days. So I watch a lot of YouTube, which should be uh, no surprise to anybody, but I'd like to talk to you about a couple of non-electronics-related channels that I love watching. I basically don't miss you know, any of their videos, um, and I'm not going to get all of them, uh, but I'm just going to highlight a few. Now, if you're looking for suggestions on electronics channels to watch, uh, well, then all you have to do is go through the playlist for the podcast, and any one of those people will have a really good electronics-based or 3D printer-based YouTube channel for you to check out. Um, Each and every one of them are great in their own respect, But for when I need to turn my brain off, I can't really watch electronics content. There's some stuff that I can watch, but, you know, sometimes I just want to escape a little bit or watch something, for example, before bed where I may not catch, you know, all of it. Um, And so, yeah, the electronic stuff, go look at the playlist. This is not about that. So first and foremost, I've talked about them before. Um... The H3H3 podcast is my jam. It has nothing to do with electronics. Actually, it's like the furthest thing away from electronics. It's like YouTube drama type stuff. Um, So I love it because it has nothing to do with electronics. So when I just need to turn my brain off, you know, I can. But um, Ethan and the H3 crew, they don't really need a shout out. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about them. Um, all I will say though, is that if you're going to watch a couple episodes, you're going to need a couple episodes in order to get into it. If you're coming in cold and it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea. I know it. It's nearly a guilty pleasure for me. I, I like it because it's entertaining and entertaining alone. So I like the people on there. Um, the content they make is fantastic. Although, you know, the furthest thing possible from, my everyday interests. A YouTube channel that's a little bit more closely aligned with my interest is RC Test Flight. Uh, RC Test Flight is um, a gentleman uh, with uh, one of the greatest first names ever. And he does uh, more more so remote control stuff. So remote control uh, vehicle type things. Uh, He's most notable Uh, for having built a DIY or designed and built a DIY remote control snowcat, like a, uh, a vehicle that uses, you know, uh, like, like tracks, but that is made specifically for use in the snow based upon the, uh, snow grooming, uh, vehicles that they use in ski lifts and, um, ski hills and, and those kinds of places. Um, which is great because that's actually the types of vehicles that I seem to work on the most these days in my new job. But uh, recently he has taken to uh, buying a small boat 
and he's restored the fiberglass on it. Then he's designed his own electric motors for them. I mean, I think the motors are off the shelf, the motors themselves, but the whole apparatus to mount it, uh, his batteries and all that stuff is all DIY stuff. And then he hooked it up to an autopilot software that he makes uh, waypoint missions and it brings him along in tow, which is pretty freaking awesome. I mean, he even, I think it started before that even because he made himself a little uh, tugboat, remote control tugboat that was automated and dragged him around in an inflatable kayak. So this kind of stuff aligns with me very well because, you know, I dream of having a sort of like over unity power generation boat with an electric motor uh, to putt putt around. And in fact, um, if you go on my website, there is uh, an article I put there, um, simplelectronics.ca. And uh, there's a there's an article I put there that I want to make, you know, an, an electric raft to do a very, a very famous route here, which is the Rideau Canal system that uh, links Ottawa to Kingston and then overall to um, the uh, Lake Ontario. And so he's doing something uh, very similar, uh, except better, and he's actually doing it. Uh, and he plans on adding solar panel wings that will fold out and be able to power his boat for a very long time, maybe infinitely. I don't know if he's going over Unity. The boat he's using is very inefficient. It's a, um, it's a Boston whaler. It's really meant for stability at high speeds, not really efficiency at low speeds. But it is really interesting what he's doing. So I'm going to leave a link in the description to um, the boat video. But I do suggest you go over there and... Um, check it out it's it's he's he's very entertaining his videos are very good and um yeah i mean i would love to have him on the podcast for example another youtube channel i like to watch when i'm winding down is a youtube channel called shy s-h-i-e-y i'll put a link in the description as always so shy i have to guess is from eastern europe somewhere and uh, his videos caught my attention when he visited the Chernobyl exclusion zone. So basically, he didn't do it legally. It's kind of like sneaking in and hiding from the, the patrols and stuff like that and, and then sneaking out. But it was really cool uh, following along his journey uh, into the Chernobyl exclusion zone uh, and, you know, looking at cool stuff that hasn't been seen, you know, in whatever the amount of years was it in the 80s so are we are we talking like nearly 40 years geez that's been a long time he also does um train surfing so he rides you know in cargo trains in the in the in the wagons uh of course illegally as well um but it's really cool the sense of freedom that you get uh riding in like an open train car and seeing the the horizons and the the uh, the landscapes and stuff like that so it's a really cool channel if you want to see sort of like old you know ussr ish type stuff he goes down in bunkers you get to see a lot of views that you don't get to see uh, unless you want to you know jump on train wagons which is not recommended 
so yeah, his channel, very cool too. And not really something that most people will think of watching, but I think it's really interesting. So talk about it here. Another really cool channel I like watching is Matthias Wandel, who is a Canadian YouTuber. Actually, he used to live in Ottawa. And as far as I know now, he's in New Brunswick somewhere. But he makes, uh, he's basically an engineer at heart. I don't know if he's like um, actually classically trained as an engineer. I know he used to work for BlackBerry. It's that, um, you know, phone company that uh, your uh, weird old relatives used to use as phones. But that was a Canadian company. And um, he makes all sorts of cool machines and, uh, simp you know, on the surface, simple, simple machines out of wood. He basically does everything out of wood. He built himself like a bandsaw out of wood. Um, he makes wooden gears. He created a, um, a template uh, software to make um, uh, gear templates that you can then print and then glue onto wood and then you can cut it. Um, you can probably import them into 3D software and just have them 3D printed and stuff like that. He's a really cool guy. Um, we talked over email a little bit. I just reached out and uh, this was before the podcast and uh, told him I loved his channel and stuff. And I told him he was in uh, that I was in Ottawa, too, and, and stuff like that. So he's a, he was a really nice guy. Um, we didn't meet up or anything, which is that's totally fine. I probably wouldn't want to meet up with randos from the Internet as well. But, yeah, his stuff is uh, very cool. And he uh, does a lot of work with uh, Raspberry Pis and temperature sensors and stuff like that. He made an entire uh, wooden jig to break pieces of wood to determine, you know, which uh, species of tree makes for the strongest wood to build machines out of and, and stuff like that. He's very, his stuff uh, varies a lot from sort of like making furniture uh, up into, you know, making these complex machines with wooden gears and stuff like that. He was actually on a local TV show here. Uh, showcasing his uh, marble machines. He had like machines that would, um, you know, send marbles down ramps and all sorts of things, and then it would come back up automatically. Really cool stuff. Um, highly recommend you check out his channel. He took a couple sponsorships recently to get like EcoFlow, the, those power, um, those big power banks. Um, but the issue with them is that he tried, I think he tried to charge, charge the power bank uh, while using the output and he fried one of the boards and there was a there's a whole bunch of drama going on there and so really interesting stuff also he uh, is never shy to break out a oscilloscope to take a look at what's going on so it's a it's a really good channel I do recommend Matthias Wandel as well another cool and uh, really relaxing channel to watch is uh, Zyla Foxlin uh, Zyla is a maker. I think she's in California. Um, she's pretty well known for having built uh, sort of like epoxy and wood type constructions. I think she built her own canoe, a kayak, a paddle, uh, stuff like that. She also made a wooden uh, rocket, uh, not a, not a full-size rocket. I mean, I'm sure she would if she had the funding for it, but... Um, like a, a model rocket, although it's, it was pretty big. It must have been at least five feet long um, and fired it off in the desert. 
She made her own uh, teardrop camper. I mean, she's done some really cool stuff. It seems like she's working on another boat. Looks like she's working on a sailboat based on her uh, Twitter. So um, really cool stuff. Her build videos are very well edited and stuff. So it's more like entertainment and going on a journey with her rather than a how to do this yourself. Although there is a lot of uh, helpful tips and advice in her uh, videos. She also has, she's sponsored, I believe, I don't know if it's a monetary sponsor or just a material sponsor by a Total Boat, which is sort of like an epoxy resin type uh, company. And um, it, she her content is awesome. Uh, she's another one on the um, uh, on the list for to have on the podcast, but you know, um, I'm not. I'm just not sure how to reach out to her because it does, just doesn't seem to be working. Um, although I have had um, previous guests to the podcast uh, tell me that they have contacted her before and or or they have met her before, and she is just one of the busiest people you'll ever meet and looking at the progress of her videos it seems pretty obvious that that's the truth so you know no no shade at all um but yeah if ever she had an opening in her schedule and uh you're you know if you're listening to this Zyla I'd love to have you on the podcast I'd love to pick your brain about a couple things another great YouTube channel I love to unwind with is Camping with Steve um I think one of the commenters once called him the Bob Ross of camping, and I do believe that's quite accurate. He's a Canadian uh, from the prairie somewhere, Edmonton, Alberta, uh, pretty much uh, Canada's Texas, if you will. Or is it Canada's Florida? Yeah, one of those two. Um, but anyways, he goes um, what, what he likes to call stealth camping, where he would go camping where he's not supposed to be, and tries to blend in with the environment, have a little bit of a meal, usually way too big of a meal, and uh, just hang out for the evening. It's uh, such great videos to put on and go to sleep to because it's not very action-y. I mean, some of his videos have some action in it because he almost gets caught a couple times. But mostly, it's just uh, sort of hanging out in wilderness, having a beer with inexpensive uh, camping gear, you know, very achievable stuff. Uh, sometimes there's like inclement weather uh, and you get to see how he deals with it. Um, he's also a gas fitter by trade, uh, either a gas fitter or like a HVAC tech, something like that, furnace tech. And so he does drop some knowledge on you about, um, you know, propane and, and those little propane heaters. He uses a little propane heater a lot because he is in Canada. Um, but he just seems like a normal, everyday guy. And you just hang out with him while he, you know, has some beers, either, um, you know, with a little fire going on his uh, acreage where he lives or on Vancouver uh, on Victoria Island in, in BC, Vancouver Island, Vancouver Island, I think, in uh, British Columbia. Um, and he just has this ability to make these uh, little mundane sounding outings uh, be entertaining. It's just calm, relaxing, good vibes all around, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, Camping with Steve, 
definite uh, recommendation. It's not the type of video that you can easily explain what's so great about it. It just is. And you just have to see for yourself. So again, link in the description to all these that I'm talking about. I'd also be uh, remiss if I didn't mention South Main Auto Repair. Um, now, a lot of you aren't automotive people, and that's completely fine. But what I like about South Main, which uh, sets him apart, is that he shares his reasoning for what he's doing, the choices he's making, and sort of the automotive theory behind those choices when relevant. And so it's actually not specifically an automotive person's channel it's actually accessible to everyone at least everyone that has you know kind of like a, at least a minor sense of what's going on in their car um, really cool because he explains everything uh, you know down to the beginner level uh, whether that be advertent or inadvertent he also has um, interactions with his uh, he has a dog and a cat that's always at work with him, uh, an employee. We don't see the employee too, too much. Uh, and his wife uh, is also works uh, with him. And you get to see their interactions together. I love it because, you know, he basically um, brings you along for the journey. It's Again, it's more of a storytelling of, you know, car comes in with problem A and the steps he took to, you know, resolve problem A it's not necessarily like do this, 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 and this. It's more like I'm going to try this because I think this, this, than this. And what's really cool is that he has such a wealth of knowledge that uh, me being a dealership trained guy, uh, I do things sort of, I was, I learned to do things the way Honda intended me to fix their cars. Like I followed their procedures um, Eric at South Main Auto, he is more of a general shop guy. In fact, he is a general shop guy because uh, he works on pretty much everything. But even picking up a, a Honda, he follows those same procedures. Um, like he came to the same conclusion of using the same steps without the sort of dealership training that I got. I personally think that Eric is uh, some sort of genius, um, but I don't think... You know, I, I don't think he thinks that of himself, uh, especially because he doubts himself all the time uh, while on camera and doing diagnostics. One big example, um, I think there's not many people in this trade that can handle, um, you know, communications problems like, um, you know, uh, CAN bus issues where the modules can't talk to each other. And I mean, at the surface, uh, the system is pretty simple. But the issue is being sure of what you're talking about because there's a couple things that could happen internally in a module that causes communication errors to like uh, progress and they're very hard to, uh, to sort of put your finger on exactly uh, what's wrong, you know. So he was uh, dealing with it very strategically, which is very nice. It's actually a video I'm going to show to my students because he's... Um, the way he tackled it is the ideal way to do it. He broke up the system into sections and then, you know, cut off sections and see if the problem went away. 
So really good of him to to sort of explain his steps. You can see that he wasn't confident in what he was doing, but he got to the right answer in the end. And once he knew for sure that was the right answer, then, you know, all bets are off. Confidence is back. Everyone's good. But yeah, Eric O from South Main Auto, he's just an entertaining person, but he he's also a very knowledgeable person and he's a good storyteller as well. So I do recommend you go check out his stuff. If you happen to go on anybody's channel that I mentioned uh, in this podcast, it would be really appreciated if you went in their comments section and left them a positive comment about what you liked about their content and that uh, you came from, you know, this podcast shouting them out. There's this weird thing that happens on YouTube where um, creators, especially slightly bigger creators, they get spammed all the time by either uh, people wanting to advertise, people asking questions or basically have wanting them to work for free um, and all sorts of things like that. And so they they get bombarded typically with you know lots of um, lots of negativity as well. And so if I were to reach out uh, to these creators and say, hey, you know, I talked about your channel on the podcast. I think you're great. Uh, you know, all these things. Um, it could get lost in the noise. It's it's not easy uh, filtering the sort of the the positive from the negative on YouTube. And so if you go and check out their their channel and you like their content, um, I would recommend you leave a comment telling them that. I think they deserve at least that. But um, perhaps let them know that, um, you know, that there's a podcast uh, saying nice things about them. Because even though they won't be forced, you know, they won't feel obliged to come over here and thank me for it or anything like that. I think it's just really good for them to know that if they want to, they can listen to the podcast and know and, and see what I, I said about them. Um, if I reach out and I say, you know, all, all sorts of the things like check out the podcast that talked about you, it sounds like self-promotion and that's really not what I'm going for here. I don't really want them, you know, to, to shout me out or to, um, you know, uh, tell their uh, subscribers to go come listen over here. That's not the point. The point is to give you guys something more to listen to, um, you know, when when the, when you need to wind down or whatever. I just want to highlight a couple channels I, I watch. So I think the best way for that not to sound like self-promotion is for you to go check out their channels. And if you like them, then let them know because I think... Uh, people who do hard work and all the creators I talked about. I've got a massive list, by the way, but the podcast is only so long. Um, but all the people who work on uh, on their channels like that, all these channels that I've mentioned are all fantastic creators. And they deserve to know that their work is good. And if you are one of those creators that um, maybe you tuned into the podcast, um, I do legitimately watch your content. And you could uh, send me an email and ask me some trivia questions, I'll probably be able to answer them. So yeah, we're just going to end the uh, podcast here then, uh, because yeah, I'm uh, just incredibly busy. It's now 9.51pm, and I got to get up in the morning to shovel. Uh, oh yeah, oh, I have to edit this too. So thanks everyone for listening. Um, when I'm really busy, uh, and you know, I have to 
you, you know, drag my feet a bit and, and make the podcast. It's because of the positive comments I got, you know, lots of people or more and more people are reaching out telling me that they love the podcast. It's because of people like you that I keep going and keep doing the podcast. Uh, so thank you everyone for listening. Um, your, your, um, pa- your pa- patronage, not that you're joining Patreon, but the fact that you're listening to the podcast, your, your patronage being here is really noticed and I really appreciate it. I appreciate every one of you listening. Thanks for listening.